people being quite loud. It's a gift that my mother never appreciated. And, uh, but I, I don't know, I'm going to make sure people can hear me in the back. That's all I just, I, I don't want to, I don't want to shout, but I'm capable of it. But nobody likes it when I do, uh, least of all my children. So uh, we're in Ezekiel. Now, the reason I want to tell you we're in this text already is because of the introduction I'm about to make to the book, to what we're studying. And so you know you are just entering by God's providence uh, and by God's plan, the right, in a sense, the right time. What I mean by this is this. All right, here's the way that we're going to introduce this text today. I want to talk about why a vision, why this mystical, magical, terrifying vision of glory is so tender, so available, so rich a treasure for people in exile. Ezekiel is written with an extremely sharp measure of time, a, a moment in time for the people of God, and they're in exile. They have, that's why I'm assuring you that this was not uh, written for today, they have lost their church, their family, their homes, their sense of confidence as a people. They are on a journey, and, and it, 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 is, it, is re, it is wreaking havoc with them. They are confused, alarmed, and days of despair, days of self-doubt, days of disgust with themselves. These are the days they're living through by the Chibar Canal, it said. And they're in, uh, they've been taken up into the Babylonian captivity in the 580s B.C., and... God gives them a vision. And it seems to me that there's something precious. I think a lot of us in, out here in San Francisco are, feel like exiles anyway. We're, we're far, many of us are far away from home. So it has that special urgency to it. And for many of us today, it will have an even more special urgency that this is a word, this is a vision, this is this amazing scene that Ezekiel sees um, is for a people who are in transit and have lost a lot and are asking themselves a lot of questions. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to begin reading a little bit before, uh, just a little bit before the, the text I printed, unfortunately. You'll get to hear a little bit more about what your kids are going to hear in, uh, in children's church. It's Ezekiel chapter 1. This, uh, this vision has been uh, attributed at times to um, schizophrenic delusion. He's been accused of that. Uh, there's an intense psychoanalysis of uh, Ezekiel as just nuts. Perhaps he was met ancient aliens. Have you ever seen that? Has anybody ever seen that? Any other interpretation? Yeah. There's some groovy pictures online that show you that. I did not make the, give those pictures to your kids. Um, there were... Uh, anyway, it's It's strange. I am taking the perspective, let's say, I, I'm going to, not going to assume you agree with my presuppositions about the text, but I'm going to take the assumption that a God has moved to reveal himself. And we're going to begin reading some of the strangeness of the story here, because I want to talk about the wheels 
the wheels. This is, all right, there's a lot of chaos in the syntax, by the way. I've translated this. I'm going to start reading before your text, Stephen, uh, a few at verse 15. If you want to close your eyes and imagine it, you can try. Four creatures are flying. They have four heads, four faces, just like the creatures in Revelation. A man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. A man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And next to them, this is where we come into 15. Now I looked at the living creatures. I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four. This is what the wheels and their construction kind of look like. They appeared to be made of something like glowing green gems. And the four all looked the same, looking like they were a wheel built inside another wheel. And when they moved, they went in any four directions without turning as they rolled. Their rims, their rims were tall and incredible. The rims were filled full of eyes all around on all four of them. And when the living creatures moved, the wheels went with them. And when the living creatures lifted off the ground, the wheels rose. And whenever the spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rolled with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. They all moved together. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was an enormous panorama, shining like amazing crystal, spread out over their heads. And under this immense panorama, their wings were stretched out straight toward one another, I don't know if you've, uh, that uh, looks just like the Ark there, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of a waterfall, like the sound of the Almighty, a loud volume like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And a voice came from above the huge panorama over their heads. They stopped moving and let down their wings. And above that panorama over their heads, there was what looked like a throne. I think this picks up our text now. Looking like sapphire. And seated on what looked like a throne was someone who looked human. From what looked like his waist up, I saw what seemed like molten metal, looking like an enclosed blaze. From what looked like his waist down, I saw what seemed like burning fire. And it was bright all around him, like a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. That was what the brightness looked like all around. This was what the appearance of the glory of the I Am seemed to look like. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And he spoke to me. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him talk, speaking to me. Uh, Father, uh, this man comes to you um, and asks for the work that only you can do by your spirit. You, 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 stood this, you stood Ezekiel on his feet to speak, to hear you, and, uh, and, and uh, then to speak. I, I need the same thing, so we all do in this room right now. We ask for the Holy Spirit to enter. Uh, do this forcible entry with us. I pray in Christ. Amen. Uh, one of the greatest surprises I had moving out here, uh, I moved out here about 18 months ago. And I had been a pastor in Atlanta. Now, I'm not a southern boy by any stretch. Just not. And um, Atlanta was uniquely challenging for me. 
Because I'd never been around such a deeply, deeply Christianized culture. You know, do you know what I mean by that? A, a, a culture that relationally, socially, and morally was deeply informed by the Christian tradition. It was everywhere. So, as a pastor, um, people were terrified of you. It was terrible. I mean, I, as, a, as a minister of the gospel, you'd meet somebody, and immediately you could see every, I don't know, whatever, every experience they ever had with a pastor, negative, positive, otherwise, they're kind of like, you know, they're ready. In fact, I noticed something. I noticed I'd start talking to my wife about it, start talking to Mary Jane about it. I said, I've noticed something. Every time somebody finds out I'm a pastor, they start telling me all the good things they do. They start giving me, it's, it's hilarious. This is very, very true in the South. They start, well, you know, I do, uh, you know, I work in, uh, at the United, oh, I go down to the, I, and they start giving me a list of all the good things they do. I, was, I thought maybe I should start carrying a little, you know, get out a hell free card or something as a joke and go, here you go. I'm proud of you. Here you are. Here's a little absolution. Coming out here, coming out here, it's very freeing to me. I've been very surprised. I get in spiritual conversation constantly. It's almost like people hearing I'm a pastor here, I'm like some sort of throwback. I'm like some sort of evolutionary kickback. And there's no, there's still people like you in the world. And I, I mean, I think they think of me as some sort of Neanderthal, potentially. I could interview me and find out something interesting about the past. I enjoy it. It's kind of fun because they don't feel threatened. They don't feel threatened. There's another defense. But it's funny. A similar pattern happens, though. They tend to have a spiritual uh, you know, conviction, disposition. You guys, many of you have lived here much longer than I have. And, but they'll start talking about their spiritual experiences, too, like, and, 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 and I think wanting to connect. I think it's a fair way. I'm, I'm a spiritual professional. You know, that's, that's, I'm sure he wants to talk about my spiritual things too. And I do. I like hearing about them. But I see a remarkable similarity between that and Atlanta. And what I hear, what I constantly hear as I'm listening, because I'm listening for this, I'm listening actually for this, are people imagining and conceiving and understanding religion as a way of them getting to God. Does that make sense? Of them putting a ladder up and climbing up it. And they have conceived, they have imagined, and I think this is what we all naturally imagine, is the idea of creating a religious experience or idea or participating in a religious group which will get me to a, a, maybe a new plane of existence. Maybe it's heaven. Maybe it's a new a new rebirth of my soul. Maybe it's nirvana, the, the blowout. The, that's what nirvana means. And maybe it's a, a, some ecstatic experience, and, and, I'll, and I will get high too. And maybe the, all the, but it all originates in man, in a woman. It all originates in people reaching, I'm going to get, That is not, that is not the faith of the Old and New Testaments. It is not the nature 
or the substance or the direction or the uh, inflect. It's not anything about what this experience is. Because the wondrous thing about the personal God named and visualized by, by Ezekiel here, the wonderful thing that's being is the idea that you are not seeking God in this context. Ezekiel's not seeking God in this context. Ezekiel, the exiles who are estranged from their, their church and their community and their life are not seeking. And yet God, this God, is seeking them. You see how different that is? And you can see how, how it's a completely different roadmap and understanding of what authentic spirituality looks like. And there is an idea, and it is everywhere in the scripture, of a God on the move. <laughs> this idea of an I am, this, uh, this uh, animated, amazing vision of a creature of glory who is on the move. And that's where we're looking at today. He's on the move. And right up through, this is why I want to talk about the wheels. He's on the move. What is more pedestrian than wheels? This is kind of funny. If you have any idea of the majesty and splendor of God that's being described here, uh, there's a funny, the, um, the rabbis, uh, there's a word in here, the rabbis uh, wouldn't let students uh, read this because they said it was too mysterious and too weird. Ezekiel was only for the mature. So in the tra- traditional rabbinic curriculum, you weren't engaged, you weren't allowed to read Ezekiel until you were older. And, uh, and there was a famous uh, myth that, uh, a young child was reading Ezekiel and finally understood some of the words. He understood some of the words. We don't even know what they mean. He understood the words, and immediately uh, the fire on the throne came out and consumed him. Pretty awesome. He's on wheels, though. Do you get the how? Dis- do you get the dis- disjunction there? The the weird kind of that doesn't. You don't put the God of Glory on wheels, do you? I mean, or do you? Why the wheel, that's, and they've got eyes, and I don't, honestly, I don't really, can't explain that. It, it, it certainly does invite you to some pretty interesting visual images, and if you're getting bored, go on your phone, and look at Google, Google Images, Ezekiel's vision, and you can entertain yourself if you're bored. But it occurs to me, my thesis that I began with, that this personal God is on the move towards us, not us towards him. He is on, that's the, that is, it's touchdown. <laughs> it's, it's, I have, there we don't have a little expression in our, in our culture. This is where the rubber hits the road. Well, that's very telling. We, we understand that, that the motion of a wheel, that the, the motion of, 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 its, of that, transport, that transportation idea is very visceral, immediate, and I think it's meant to be jarring. I think it's meant to be disjunctive. I think it's meant to create dissonance in us as we're thinking about the glory and majesty on wheels. What's it? And many of us are not, you know, we're not looking forward to a day when we'll be wheeling ourselves around. It's kind of humbling for a human to wheel himself around. He's on, God's on wheels. Um, you know what's really precious about this? They're exiles, Right? They're exiles. They've left their home, their church, their family. They're, they're, they are in situ. They are in media race in the midst of their journey, in the midst of their way. I bet you they saw a lot of wheels, right? 
if you've moved hundreds and hundreds of miles in an ancient world, what did you see and hear the entire time in a wagon? Wheels. And so when God, in this vision, why, why does God use wheels? I'm on the move with you. I'm down in the dirt with you. I am on the move towards you. And it's the first idea out the gate of a God who's different than the gods of this world. Our God, this God, is on the move. Why, I, I, I'm excited about this because I am not, I don't want to settle. And I don't want to settle for a God who's a mere abstraction. I'm not interested in a God who's a mere abstraction. I'm not interested, and I don't, I don't think there's going to be ultimately comfort for me, in a God who's a mere abstraction. Because this God, if he is on wheels, if he's that immediate into our experience that we can look out and there's wheels rolling by right now, only 50 feet away, and God said, I want you to know I'm that real, I hear him saying to the exiles, it is not an accident, and this universe, this universe, when you see this vision, is full of my intimacy. Do you hear that? This, my son loves Hemingway, my older son. Any, any Hemingway fans? Any, uh, I don't like Hemingway at all. First of all, because I envy his ability. I love to write, and he's brilliant. And my son devoured uh, Alex. Alex has got that. Uh, he's one of those kind of minds that keeps devouring. <laughs> and he's like, he just keeps he's consuming all the time. Everything he can get his hands on. So he read everything in, in Hemingway's Corpus. And, he told, and so I began to read it just so I keep pace with him. I want to be able to have a dialogue with my son about what he's reading. I told him why I, would, I, I wouldn't read Hemingway anymore. Because Hemingway's universe, God and meaning don't exist. That's why I don't like it. Because it's an intolerable vision of the world. In it, the characters for whom the bell tolls are maybe catching love a moment and then he loves gone. And, mur- and that sense of randomness and the war that's destroying everybody. And it's all in Hemingway's vision. Life has no destination. It has no presence of God. It has no purpose. And you may or may not find love you may or may not find life, and you may just find what? Meaninglessness and death. And for all his brilliance, what Hemingway does is he compellingly paints a picture of his vision of the world. His vision's wrong. That's what the wheels are telling us. There's no abstraction. God is on the move. He is hit the road, running. Uh, I think this meets, uh, I thought I talked about three days, the days of despair, the days of doubt, and the days of disgust. I think this helps with the days of doubt. Uh, and it happens to all of us. You ever have that day when you're downtown or you're on your way somewhere, somebody cuts you off, or, or you hear something on the news, that some sort of random, random horrifying story from ISIS to to some crime or to politics, and you suddenly get this real, little feeling, this little worry, this little threat, this little jab that maybe there's no meaning. Like maybe it's just, does that ever happen to you? Like maybe it's just, maybe it's just, maybe I'm all alone. Like maybe there's not going to, maybe, 
I can feel the panic. Gosh, I'm creating a panic right now. I've got to calm down. All right, so uh, I'm a little neurotic. You're going to get to get used to that. And, uh, or uh, maybe you don't. So, uh, but, but, but uh, that's a lie. It's not true. The universe is personal. From atomic structure to the spin of Andromeda to the days and lives of my son and my neighbors and my car and the pistons in the engine and the, the, the documents that you're written and whether word formats right. My father, our father, this God, is present and he's on the move. Which brings us to the second thing I think this vision is meant for. He's on the move to do what? He's on the move to become, to touch. I was trying to translate this text. I was telling you about the chaos. The syntax, the syntax by the way, uh, there's tons of great Zimmerleys, very famous for this, where men have tried to say that this text had to be a murderous cut-and-paste job. The original Masoretic tradition, when compared to the ancient Greek translation called the Septuagint, is a mess. When I say a mess, there's a lot of words that are only used once in the whole Bible. They're called hapax legomena. There's a whole bunch. And the syntax gets tortured. It's a tortured report we've looked at we've been looking at it together as a as a as a as a community and one reason i think it's tortured and strange is because it's have you ever done this have you ever like had something amazing or traumatic happen and you you quickly jot down notes about what just happened like maybe like a little journal and you're scribbling out this i saw this and i saw that and i saw that and what, what, is that first, what does that first report kind of look like when you go back to it later? It's crazy. It's just, it's thought after thought and collecting and trying to remember and trying to organize. And I think the reason the syntax is so tortured is that this is a firsthand report of a vision of a God, my God, <laughs> on the move. The second thing, though, you'll notice, you notice if you actually look at the text right there, you'll hear the language, it looked like, it looked kind of like, what appeared like. What... So, not only is there some of the overwhelmed nature that the, that the prophet seems to participate in, there's something else here, too. He is hitting the limits of human language, isn't he? He's, I mean, if you're going to talk about a God, if you're going to talk say that there is a God, there's some eternal being for whom the whole universe shrinks to a, into a, just the span of a hand, and he's eternal... How do you, or let's say you were, see, well, he looked like, I can't, it, it was like, that's what this language is like. He was kind of like, well, he was burning, and then, uh, green? Yeah, it was green, yeah. Uh, and it, that's, you get, the, you get that? There's a, he, when we, when I, even when I try to talk about God, when anybody does, we will reach the very threshold, the very limits of what language can even do. Does that make sense? And haven't you ever been there experientially when you're praying? When you, Paul talks about, you, you don't have words anymore? We experience this all the time. We get right to the end and we're like, I don't feel like I even know how to talk to you or who you are. Ezekiel's experiencing that. Okay. I think Ezekiel, there's third, we've looked at those first two. I, I want to I make a third proposal as well. And it's friendly to the first two. I think Ezekiel doesn't like his vision. I 
Ezekiel had a Bible like we do, but it was much shorter. Does anybody know what his Bible would have been at this point, about 587 B.C.? The Pentateuch, Pente being five, the first five books of the Bible, and they are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're written by Moses, and uh, they're claimed to be written by Moses, and I think they were, and he was obviously had some help. They are a masterpiece of law and experience, and of, uh, by the way, the same, the opening proposal I made, not of man going towards God, but of what? God on the move. Towards man. The centerpiece of the Pentateuch is Exodus 34. When Moses sees God. He actually asks to see him. He says, now show me your glory to God. He's in the midst of a crisis too. He's in the midst of their exiles again. By the way, the story of Christians being exiles is pretty consistent. If that's any comfort. It's a long history of being on the move. Well, God's on the move. It all makes sense, right? Moses wasn't allowed to see God. In fact, God says to him, No man sees my face and lives. No man sees my face and lives. We sang it in the Holy, Holy, Holy. What does it say? Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. And I'm going to tell you, Ezekiel is in a theological crisis and panic when he's writing down the vision because his hero is Moses, not Jesus yet. His hero, like ours, is Christ. His hero is Moses, and Moses wasn't allowed to see God. Moses was told if he saw God, he would die. And so, uh, it kind of makes sense, how does Ezekiel actually respond to the vision, by the way? What does he do? He falls on his face so he can't what? So he can't see it. Very consistent, by the way, report on those who see all this stuff. They tend to freak out. Wouldn't you? (laughs) What What I'm going to maintain here is that when Moses was not permitted to see, Ezekiel gets a glance of. Okay, you see emotion there? Ezekiel says he saw God's hind parts. It's kind of, the Hebrew tries to be a little polite there because it's really that blunt. He sees God's, I'm not going to say it. He sees God's rear parts. Okay. They try to, the Hebrew just doesn't want to, you know, it's, how do you talk about God's? Thank you. So Ezekiel's a whole step forward, isn't he? Do you see a trajectory there? Moses doesn't see anything but the after effects. Ezekiel sees the vision he can barely see. What's the progression? What's the next? That's the logical next progression in that in that sequence. I think it's this. Christ talking to Philip. Philip said, "We want to see the Father." Philip had read Ezekiel. Philip said, "I want to see the Father." Philip had read Isaiah's vision. There's a lot of visions like that. He had read Daniel. He read everything we read today. Philip said, "Show us the Father." We know. We've heard about what He looks like. And what does Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. God's on the move. And the story to the exiles is, I will be like you. I'm on the move to touch your lives with my life fully. It's the promise of incarnation. 
You see, it's the promise of being present in the flesh. It's the promise of the God-man. It's the promise of rescue. And, and right at this point, this is where I want to invite you, God is on the move to save sinners, to save those who, have, to save those who need saving. How many of you, I remember being taught a diagram. I don't know how to do this. With my, I'll do it like this. That's kind of weird. But uh, You draw a ledge on this side and a ledge on this side. Anybody else familiar with this one? A ledge on this side and a ledge on this side. So this is God over here, and this over here is Chris. And there's, there's a gap, there's an abyss, there's a separation, there's a, there's a fence too high, a valley too deep. There's no way to get across. There is irreconcilable differences. The exiles are really, are really uh, you know, they're part of the whole sinful ruin of the world, and they're suffering under it. And, and there was wickedness in Israel, and compromise, and syncretism, and, and everything. And everything's, everybody's in a tizzy, everybody's flipping out, everybody's lost to everything. And God is saying, in the gesture of Ezekiel, seeing what he knows theologically he cannot see, God is not supposed to come like this. He sees the promise. And he's going to hear it again later in Ezekiel. He sees the promise of a God who will bridge the gap in Jesus. So the idea is the cross in the sacrifice of the Son of God, the blood of the Son, and the blood of Christ, and resurrection from the dead. A God enters the world. He's on the move, right? Turns sinners to bridge and to reconcile and to bring healing and to take exiles home. To take exiles home. Can you see why they'd be so excited about this, this right here? Why this vision could potentially free them, give them new joy. I'm going to have what you and I need is we need, a, we need to grow in a compelling vision of the Jesus, of the rescues, of the blood of Christ that heals and brings forgiveness. Because that vision, not the vision of being in exile, because, the, because think about it, they're having a day of self-disgust. Who do you think they blame for being in exile? Sometimes they blame God, and they're blaming themselves. My days of self-disgust are, are terrible. What does the blood of the Son, what does the promise of incarnation, Christ, (laughs) this is what amazes me, I don't know about you, I'll be disgusted with myself because I just know who I am, and Christ, knowing all that, as the man, comes and embraces me. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call me brother. He's not ashamed to sweat. He's not ashamed of my smell. He's not ashamed. That's the vision. He's not ashamed of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is placed down because Ezekiel is ashamed of himself. And Ezekiel is experiencing the day of disgust because he knows that sinners don't belong before God and the promise of a man burning molten metal is a man who would die on a cross to die for sinners. This is such a wonderful story again for all of us. A God on the move who goes all the way. You don't even take a step other than turning with grace, turning to his grace by faith to him. Which brings us to the last thing. Not only has God in the move, look at, look at how personal it gets. He, the spirit, what? Enters. And this last part is, you know, I was just talking about this idea of Jesus on a cross as the son of God 
has, completing a big story of redemption, began in Moses, continued in Ezekiel, and realized in Christ. I'm painting a story of redemptive history here. And some of you by in doubt, some of you who don't know these stories, and some of you who are looking at this go, that's a big claim, Chris. And I'm going to tell you that the first thing we need then, and you need, and what Ezekiel needed to get up from his disgust, or to get up from his fear, or to get, is the presence and power of the Spirit. That's where healing for exiles now begins to happen. The God on the move isn't just on wheels. The God on the move doesn't just become a man to save sinners. The God on the move does what? He enters and he fills and he gives power to hear, power to stand, power to live, power of rebirth and renaissance of the soul, power of new life. And that is what Ezekiel experiences in this vision of glory. And that's what you and I, that is all our hope. Um, there's a really strange little detail about these visions. Ezekiel has one, Daniel has them, uh, Isaiah has them. They never tell you what they were doing when they had the vision. They never tell you. It's just... They never mentioned the circumstance. Would you like to know? Well, what was he? Was, you know, was he, uh, I don't know, was he doing the dishes? Was he, uh, you know, was he on a walk? Was he on his knees? Was he praying? Was he in the scripture? Was he, uh, well, you know, we want to know. And the reason that, that I think we would like to know when, where, why, what circumstances people were in the vision. And uh, why would you want to know? What would, why would you be curious? What would that curiosity come from? What would you do if you knew he was doing dishes with one leg standing up on one foot and scratching his ear? What would you do? What would you do then? There would be a whole sect of Christians who would, this would be their entire act of spiritual life, wouldn't it? There would. Why? What do we, what do we tend to do as people? Imitation. And we want to put the ladder up. And we want to get to God. That's exactly what we want to do. We want to make... Look, if I could manipulate this vision and make the Holy Spirit enter here right now, you think I'd do it? I sure would do it. Why not? It'd be awful fun. We could see what happens. God will not be manipulated. The reason we're not given the circumstances of these visions is because I think they just happen in the most mundane way. You know, when you're beside the bed in the morning with your bed hair and uh, whatever it is you wore to bed, when before you even brush your teeth and you're praying to God, what if that's when the Holy Spirit comes and the vision happens? I'd like to think that'd be kind of neat, wouldn't it? God is no respecter of persons or of how you present yourself. He's no respecter of these things. They don't, they don't mean anything in his glory. They don't mean anything to his eternity. They don't mean, we don't, and, and many of us have been caught up in kind of preparing, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to get more serious of God, about God when I prepare myself more. I'm gonna get, I want to get into a good position so I can become more spiritual. And I have this sense that we're being robbed of all that. And what the promise for Ezekiel and these prophets is, and the, and the exiles in the mundane wheels. Wheels are very mundane, right? <laughs> mundane wheels. And the fact that God was a man and people were jostling next to Jesus. And, and somebody said, he says he's the son of God. Yeah, I, I was seeing he, t- he chews with his mouth open. 
I mean, he's just an ordinary guy, you know? I, I didn't like his clothes the other day. Nobody thought he was the son of God. It's that mundane, and I think the possibility and potential is that I, I want to invite you into the why of why you pray and the why of we read the scriptures. I am so sick to death of an, I don't want to give you a law that you should be in your scriptures and worship and personal worship in the word. I don't want you to hear it that way. In fact, if that's why you do it, so you feel like a good man or a good woman and God's going to like you more and maybe someday you'll get a vision in the spirit, if you're really, really good, then I would suggest you forsake going, doing any, pre, any prayer or any Bible study for a year. Not really. I, that was an exaggeration. I have a hope that if the Holy Spirit moves and a vision of God captivates us as exiles and we get captivated again by the love of Jesus which touches our lives and our hearts and the Spirit enters, what, does, what is prayer and Bible study then? What is prayer and Bible study to the person who has been lifted up by the Spirit to stand before God? What is it? It's the eager heart that wants to touch and know that God and have Him. And it begins with the why, right? It's why do you pray and why would you study scripture? Because the electric energy of God has chased you down by the spirit and you are compelled that you will know him and you will make him known. You have no choice. You're not, you're not engaged in trying to figure out how I'm going to get closer to God in this process. You're engaged in the process of saying when and how and where will you get close to me? <laughs> How and when and where will you draw close to me and my suffering as an exile, my confusion, my days, finally my days of what? Days of despair. How will you enter into the mundane things? And I think we've missed that one of, what the, one of the reasons we're not given these details is because a lot of the vision and the power of the vision and the presence of the Spirit appears in all the mundane nature of a people who cry out every day, Father, Father. Father, give me the Spirit. Father, lead me, lead me with a vision through these dark days as an exile. Father, I want to encourage you with this. God is on the move. Make no mistake. He's on the move right now in the city. He is. The tracks of his wheels. You can see them, I think. You can't swing a dead cat in this city without hitting a church planter right now. They're all over the place. <coughs> Fix your thoughts and your eyes and your attitudes and your possibility and your vision on Jesus. On the freedom of the gospel for you and for me, right? The freedom of, of a people loved and God has never sneered, never lifted his nose, never turned away in disgust at you or me. Be free. Feel that freedom fill your wings. And then finally, seek the empowering presence. Seek that in your mundane or mundane lives, doing dishes with the kids or wherever, that maybe, maybe we live in a time, maybe, just maybe, miss maybe, the Holy Spirit will fill the city. And we'll see revival in our times. And God on the move will move here. <laughs> and all the things this city is famous for, wouldn't it be amazing if it became famous for a place of revival, the gospel, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you're good. You're very good. I thank you for your word. I'm hungry, Father, for a vision. I, 
I guess nowhere does this get more practical and mundane than in the table we're about to come to, where you become so tangible and real. And give us joy together. I I thank you for these brothers and sisters who are visiting today. And and I'm praying, Father, for a movement of your spirit now at Endress. Cause us to stand and to go and to live and to, and to chase you. You're on the move. And we ask for a clearer, ever clearer vision then of what Ezekiel was seeing. And that's you, our dear Savior. I pray for new life, new energy, new passion, new renewal to happen for all of us, for myself, my family, and for everybody here, for kids We pray all this in Christ, with joy. Amen.